Blood Bond by Nick Bastin. Copyright 2019, Nick Bastin. Following his unexpected victory at the Battle of Culloden, Prince Charles Edward Stuart became King of the Gales and split the Highlands and Islands of Scotland from the rest of Britain. Upon his death, the Free Republic of the Gales was declared. Since then, the Gallic Republic has maintained its own culture and language, ploughing its idiosyncratic furrow to the present day, a constant irritant to its larger and more powerful neighbour. Chapter 5 the return. Ninian turned the boat out of the harbour, piling on the speed as they rounded the seawall. Gillespie was sitting in the bow, holding on to the grab rope for all his worth as the boat skittered and thumped over the shallow waves. The hills that lined either side of the water had names that were so familiar from songs and dances, stories and films, that he felt he really did know them. It was as if his connection to these places, despite being severed by generations, still itched through some vicarious phantasmagoria. The landscape was already becoming more imposing, with the Cowl shore rolling away towards the Republic's southern border. To the west, the hills of Knapdale were dotted with forestry, dark and pointed conifer plantation, still naked deciduous woods, stands of aspen and rowan, and bushes of goat willow and blackthorn. Despite the passage of winter, the landscape was still green here, and the relative shelter and regular rainfall cloaking it in emerald and tourmaline, chrysoprase and peridot. They passed stubby Loch Gilp before turning the corner at Otter, leaving the wider expanse of the lower loch behind and moving into the narrower confines of its upper reaches. Ninian swung the boat to hug the western shore, skirting a small island. Gillespie saw that Kirsty was on her phone, speaking earnestly while looking towards a massive emplacement shrouded in camouflage netting that covered most of the island. It was dotted with loitering groups of men, and there was a tall pole on its summit that flew a flag showing a castle with three towers. He searched his memory for that crest, dredging up McLaughlin of McLaughlin from a deep, seldom-touched recess. From the snatched words through the wind roar, it seemed that Kirsty was making a payment to ensure safe passage. As they passed, Ian and Jamie waved across at a small group of men who waved slowly back. He leant round to Breach and was opening his mouth to speak when she cut across him. That is the tiger's mouth sometimes known as McLaughlin's Folly. We have to pay a toll to pass, not much, but it keeps him in the style to which he's become accustomed. Breach laughed sarcastically, turning face towards him. Old McLaughlin thinks he's a big noise, but he sits there sandwiched between McCullen Moore and the Lamentation. Do you think they pay him for passage? No, but it suits them to have him do their dirty work, guarding the lock and risking a blood feud for every gala glass he sends to the bottom. McLaughlin may think he's the big man, tiger's mouth my ass, but he could be snuffed out like that if it suited them, she said, snapping her fingers. It's only poor wee clans like us that have to pay. Still, better to toss a coin in the beggar's bowl than risk the alternative. Ordinarily, Gillespie would probably still be sat at home reading the paper while finishing his breakfast. Instead, he was cold, wet, tired, and his head still ached. He had been thinking about trying to escape again, but he knew it was hopeless. He wouldn't last five minutes, either in the water or on the shore. The first person he met would probably sling him into a dark hole and wait for a ransom that would never come. He was not a timid man, but he had travelled far and wide and could handle himself in most situations. 
This was different. He was isolated and alone. The further they sped up the loch, the more dramatic the landscape became, with high hills in all directions. Farms and dwellings were scattered along both sides of the shore. It was better tended than he had expected, and it gave the impression of calm prosperity. It still surprised him that it wasn't a smoking ruin. As they rounded a bend in the loch, there was a white township on the port bow. It could only be in Vareri, the capital of Clan Campbell, with its fine white buildings and hulking great black castle. They passed swiftly by, the small groups of men gathered on the quayside, seemingly uninterested. They were coming towards the end of their journey. Gillespie knew that much. The head of the loch was their destination, and as they approached, he could feel his sense of foreboding rising, tightening its grip on his chest. As they raced along the final stretch, he watched jagged Benbuya rise ahead of them. This was the mountain that famously dominated McNaughton's stories and songs. The thickly wooded hillside spilled down into a nubbly promontory that jutted into the dark water. In the middle of this stood Dundarav, the ancient stone tower that had been home of the McNaughton clan for more than 500 years. Surrounded by the loch on three sides, it stuck out like a pimple into the water and commanded the upper reaches of the loch. A beach of rough shingle rose to meet them, and Nin grounded the boat to allow his companions to jump ashore and start unloading. They had arrived. Chapter 6 The Welcome For the first few minutes ashore, Gillespie staggered drunkenly. His legs were stiff and sore from being crumpled beneath him, and his arms ached from holding the grab rope for so long. His whole body was zinging from the vibrations of the engine, something he only noticed now it had stopped. He thought he might be sick. A hand clapped him on the shoulder. Cheer up, said Kirsty brightly, and a warm welcome home. He wanted to punch her, to vent the suppressed anger that was pooling in his gut. But instead he leant backwards, arms akimbo, filling his lungs with air and trying to hold on to his breakfast. It was no good, and seconds later he threw up on the shingle. A fine omen, sneered Jamie. Even the rat sniggered at that. Gillespie spat the last lumps from his mouth, brushed his hair back behind his ear and turned to them. Fuck all of you, he said. I never wanted to come, remember? You kidnapped me, remember? I've been drugged and shot at, and am now stuck here in the arse end of nowhere, surrounded by heavily armed psychopaths. And you expect me to feel welcome. You're all mad. Now just be careful with the choice of your next words, said Kirsty. There are plenty here who might take offence and we wouldn't want anything to happen to you while you are our guest. Nin, chuckling, said, You've got to understand that we may not have much, but one thing we do have in abundance is pride and short tempers. And that can be a dangerous combination. Our ways may seem a little strange, but do try and be patient with us. Kirsty trudged up the beach towards a small group that were coming towards them across the shingle. They were all dressed alike in a mix of dark green and faded black, each having the same tartan panel stitched on the inside of their forearms, the men all wearing kilts, some tattered and torn, others crisply pleated. Like his companions, they were all heavily armed, and not just with the obvious weapons. The unlikely bulges in unexpected places showed that all too clearly. An assortment of swords swung from hips or were strapped on backs. Gillespie had never seen such a sight before. Few had, unless they'd visited the Republic. It was an incongruous sight in the 21st century, one that was both exotic and slightly terrifying. 
It wasn't just the weapons, although those were anathema to citizens of a civilised society, but also the confidence and ease that these people wore their unconventional clothing. He looked down at his dishevelled condition. He was still dressed in Malcolm's bloody jacket, his soaking wet trainers covered in mud and worse. His jeans were ripped open at the knee. He felt like a fish out of water. He was cold, wet, battered, dejected and degraded. It wasn't much of a homecoming. Falcher, Falcher, said a balding, middle-aged man with a beaming smile who stepped forward from the gaggle on the beach. We welcome you back to the land of your fathers. I am Ewan, Duncan Shanachie, and I've come to see that you're made to feel at home. The surrounding group all jostled him, shaking his hand and introducing themselves with genuine warmth and polite inquiries as to the journey. His head span, trying to take it all in. Introductions completed, Kirsty and Nin related the details of their crossing. There was much sucking of teeth and furrowed brows when they described the encounter with the patrol boat, and when they came to Malcolm's death, a sombre and subdued mood descended. Ewan spoke for the group when he said, This is sad news indeed. Malcolm was a kind and generous companion and friend. Fiona's going to be devastated. Angus, Ustjan, go and find her quickly and bring her to the hall. We must tell her before she hears the news from others. Two of the group peeled off and walked swiftly away into the woods while the remainder of the group continued to the tower. Chapter 7. The Tower During their brief walk, Gillespie had a chance to study his surroundings. As they approached the door-looking tower, they passed a large wind turbine and a series of stone outbuildings. Through the windows, he could see the rows of desks covered in banks of computer screens and an earnest-looking group of men and women holding a vigorous discussion. Ian the Rat followed his gaze and, before he could ask, said, Online gaming, and to be more precise, Fantan. You know, the Chinese game? We also have a very strong offering in poker and piquette. What, really? You're running online casinos from here, sputtered Gillespie, incredulous. How? Well, you didn't think we still made our money from cattle rustling, did you? Gambling software is our niche. We've been doing it for decades. Ever since old Dermid McNutt wrote the Highland Cattle Raid of Fruit Machine Code back in the 1980s. Check out our Earth Station. Ian pointed towards a six-metre satellite dish mounted beside the building. That is the latest tech. Don't tell me you've got your own satellites, Gillespie gasped. Don't be so fucking ridiculous. Of course we don't have our own satellites. We rent capacity from whoever has space. You'd be amazed who has a few spare transponders for the right price. Chinese, Israelis, Russians, Indians. There's so much capacity floating around up there. Ian gestured upwards with a sharp, yellowing finger that we can always find someone to take the signal. But what about the Brits? Surely the kingdom doesn't tolerate this on its doorstep. Well, what they don't know won't hurt them. We're deep on the dark net, and our audiences are high rollers and professional gamblers, mostly in Asia. You seem surprised, but what else do we have around here? If we want to earn money, we need to bring it here from outside. We've been doing that for many centuries. This is just the latest in a long line of schemes and dreams. Fortunately, this is working out quite well for the moment. The internet and digital communications have been a godsend. But it won't last. They never do. The rat led him through a robust-looking steel door in the ten-foot-high wall that ran round a large enclosure at the base of the tower. Gillespie looked up. The tower was peppered with small, deep-set windows that didn't seem to reflect any obvious floor plan behind, and from each corner, bartizan turrets swelled out of the corby-stepped gables. 
the mighty round tower faced down the loch. While modern weapons had rendered it largely redundant, it was still an impressive construction. The door in the gate was already open, and they walked through into the outer ward that was filled with picnic tables and benches. There was a low-lying wing to the far corner that was connected to the main tower by a loggia on the first floor and an archway on the ground floor level. Walking under this arch, wary of its ominous assortment of murder holes and gun loops, he came to a surprisingly peaceful courtyard with a dark pool at its centre. The pool surrounded a fountain of black basalt in the shape of a high round tower, the same as in the McNaughton Crest. Its steep sides rose to a flared crown surmounted by crenulations, the parapet of which seemed to have been eroded by water that dribbled and seeped from an unseen source at the top, running down its flanks and splashing into the water below. The constant babble was very calming and quite a contrast to the martial surroundings. Skirting the pool, they approached a small door tucked into a corner. It was framed by an eroded moulding and five heavily weathered carved heads that were sunk into the stone around it. The features of long-dead Pictish kings and warriors stared out from the stone, frozen in time but eaten away by the wind and weather. He knew that one of them was supposed to be Nechton Moor, the great king who had been the founder of the clan in the 8th century, brought here from an earlier building, but which it was none knew. More impressive was the ancient script carved above the door. Like any self-respecting McNaughton, he knew the words by heart already. Behold the end. Be not wiser than the highest. I hope in God. He clenched his fists in his pockets to bolster his resolve. He was determined not to embarrass himself. The thick steel blast door suddenly swung inwards, leaving a pitch-black portal. Following the rats disappearing back, Gillespie stepped into the darkness. Chapter 8. Passing on down the line. Andrew Balfour, First Minister for Scotland, carefully replaced the receiver in its cradle, the British Prime Minister's furious threat still ringing in his ears. He raised his eyes to the room. A cluster of advisers and flunkies twitched on the other side of the desk. He said nothing for a few moments, passing his penetrating stare from one to another. God, they were all so young, what the fuck use would they be in the knife fight that was about to ensue? Sighing, he poured himself another cup of coffee and picked up the receiver again. Claire? Yes, hello. Could you please get me John Lamont on the phone? Tell him it's urgent. Moments later, the sound of a phone ringing came down the wire. After a few rings, it was answered. Andrew, or should I say First Minister, how very nice to hear you. What an unexpected pleasure, as always. John Lamont's measured voice dripped passive aggression down the phone. Balfour's head twitched, as if unconsciously shrugging off the barbs. Lamont, listen, I don't have time for your pleasantries. I've just got off the phone with the Prime Minister, and she's told me that she's going to cut off your balls if you don't get the situation gripped. You are the Warden of the Clyde, and securing our seaboard of the Republic is your responsibility. What the hell is going on out there? A profound silence came down the line. The longer it lasted, the greater the pressure grew on Balfour to blink first and fill the void. Just as it got to the point that he could bear it no longer, Lament hissed. I am quite aware of my responsibilities, but I'm ever grateful to be reminded of them, of course. Now, turning to your question, I'm on the trail of the perpetrators and expect to have them in custody soon. I'll be able to make a more complete report in the coming days. As you know, it's never easy to get information in this lawless place but you can assure the Prime Minister I'm doing my utmost. I also filed a formal complaint and request for information to the Shanna in Oban.
but I think we can all know how effective that will be. He audibly yawned down the phone. Balfour paused, scanning the assembled faces before him. They carried expressions ranging from gormless to pained concentration. He felt his eye arise, constricting his throat with fury as the bile churned and roiled in his gut. They were also fucking useless. How was he supposed to manage the vicious cretins across the board of such a bunch of spineless imbeciles? The gales were a problem that should have been answered long ago. They were an inconvenience in the modern age with their funny clothes, exclusive language and pompous feudal chieftains. They had only ever brought him problems. Turning his attention back to Lament, he poured vitriol down the line. Listen carefully, you self-important Gallic cunt. I'm the elected First Minister for Scotland and you are our errand boy to that shithole you style as the Gallant Republic. Don't you forget it. Just think of all that money we pay you. Maybe we can spend it somewhere more useful, like Inverary or Dunvegan. What would happen, I wonder, if you had to pay all those retainers out of your own pocket? How long would it be before someone decided to string you up by your own guts? Not very long, I imagine. You have two days to report back. I hope I've made it clear that I don't want to hear anything other than success. I'm holding you personally accountable, and any failure will result in your funding being terminated forthwith. Is that clear, he thundered, surprising even himself with his intemperate tone. Oh, I. You're very clear, replied John of the Sorrows, so softly it was almost a whisper. And then the line went dead. Chapter 9. Scheming. As soon as Colin Campbell, Macallan Moore, Duke of Argyle, Colonel of the Black Watch, Warden of the West and Chief of the Clan Campbell, stepped into his office, the phone started ringing. He crossed the room to pick up the receiver, waving away Morag, his PA, as he did so. Yes, Macallan Moore here. He always answered the phone with his Gallic title, as that was what clan members seemed to expect. In any case, he had grown so used to being addressed by it since his father died that he was now only called Colin by his oldest and closest friends. Ah, it's you, John. I must admit, I had been expecting your call. A nasty business last night, I see. Amongst those he recognised as his equals, few and far between though they were, John Lament could be charming. With Macallan Moore, he was always at his most engaging, especially when seething under the surface about some perceived slight or other. Today was no exception. Yes, frightful, isn't it? Edinburgh's really quite upset, and even London's been on the phone to complain. It's fair to say they are looking to us wardens to deliver something to quench public outrage. I was hoping that a man of your reach and influence might have some useful information to share. Lament's obsequious tone grated on Macallan Moore's ear, but he brushed the irritation aside. I'm afraid I've heard nothing yet. Have you? Well, a little bird did whisper something in my ear, Lament continued, relishing the moment. From what I've heard, it sounds very likely that this outrage was perpetrated by a boatful of marauding McNuttons. My sources saw them coming back from the Irish Sea and crossing into Loch Fyne at Tarbot. Fortuitously, this dovetails with another matter I wanted to discuss with you for some time, and that is the small matter of the clan McNutton. With old Duncan breathing his last... Isn't this the moment to draw a line under that old song? This is the 21st century, after all. They're a distraction and a nuisance, particularly with all that illegal gaming they do. They sit there, thumbing their noses at you, practically at your front door. Surely we need to consolidate small clans like the Manhattans into bigger operations, like yours. You know it makes sense. The current situation presents us with a rather wonderful opportunity to...
how should I say, kill two birds with one stone. Lamont didn't do pleading, and this was as close as McCallan Moore had ever heard him. He stared out of the window and across the boggy lawn and gardens towards the loch. After a few moments, he replied, Hmm, and what exactly do you have in mind? Blood Bond was written and recorded by Nick Bastin. The Reel of the Red Banner was written and performed by Ewan Henderson. This has been a Book of the Black Tower production.